the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, if you think about it, I think we can all agree that we live in a fallen, sin-tarnished world, replete with all the effects that that has had on man's fallen condition, one by the way of our own doing, uh, that of course, uh, that impact on our relationships, first between mankind and his creator, second between mankind and his neighbor. Now, if the power of the gospel to forgive and restore on the vertical plane has the effect that it has in restoring, in reconciling our relationship with God, that reconciliation between creator and creation, should not that same restorative power take place in relationships extending across the horizontal plane? Let's talk about that. Lisa Sharon Harper joins us. She's Chief Church Engagement Officer with Sojourners, the author of a new book called The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Lisa, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much, Greg. It's great to be here. This is a point that perhaps all of us need to be pondering. Uh, We sometimes want to limit God in our thinking, in seeing the gospel as the ability to be forgiven and reconciled and walk in restored relationship between creation and creator. And while all of that is true and all of that is predominant and, and critical and first and foremost, the story really of reconciliation behind the power of the gospel doesn't end there, does it? Well, you're exactly right. I mean, I think for myself, I, I, was, I became a Christian and walked down the aisle. I like to say I jumped the broom with Jesus in 1983, August 21st of 1983. Actually, my birthday with Jesus is coming up pretty soon. Quite a, it sure <laughs> is, isn't it? I almost forgot that. Um, but, you know, I, I came to faith, and I was told pretty quickly, you know, that this is, this is really about my relationship with God, and that's it. And I took a journey just about 13 years ago um, called the Pilgrimage for Reconciliation. And on that pilgrimage, we went across 10 states in the, in the south, the northern south and the deep south, asking the question the whole way as we retraced the Cherokee Trail of Tears and the African experience in, in the, um, on this land from slavery through civil rights. We were asking, what does the gospel have to say to this? And I had to really face a hard truth when I got to the end. I realized that if I were to share my understanding of the gospel with my ancestors, it wouldn't make them jump for joy. I don't think they would have received it as good news. My ancestors who walked the Trail of Tears, who, according to family oral tradition, and who slaved in South Carolina, if I went up to them and I said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, (laughs) but you are sinful and therefore separated from God, all you need to do is pray this prayer because Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, and then you'll get to go to heaven. Would that make them jump up and down? I had to really admit the reality of no, it would not. And so that's what propelled me on a 13-year 
uh, journey, really, in Genesis, the book of Genesis, and then all the way through the Scripture to find what is, how does Jesus actually communicate the Gospel? Because I think at at the end of the day, that, that sense of realization, that quickening of man's separation from God and sin and the need for um, uh, spilled blood for, for forgiveness and reconciliation is something that we, while we can explain it, it really can only be quickened to one's heart through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And yet oftentimes I think we as the church sort of leave it there. It's sort of the one and done. And once you've, you, you've accomplished that, uh, meaning that you've, you've made that surrender, you've asked for forgiveness, you've given your life over to God. God is therefore, through the power of the work of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, forgiven us. And, and that reconciliation process begins. And, and that's wonderful and beautiful and, and all part of God's design to be sure. But God wants so much more for us, doesn't he? And that the notion of his creation living in harmony together was certainly a part of the original plan until mankind managed to mess things up there in the Garden of Eden. But, but right. God wanted for us to walk in harmony. Disunity and the turmoil that we're living in today, while certainly as a end product of man's fallen condition, is not God's ideal for us. Well, that, that's exactly right. And actually, I have to say, this was really critical in my research, was what I found was that at the end of Genesis 1, when God looks around at creation and says, this is very good, that that word good, tov, is really kind of a clincher, because um, it, it, when, you, when you open up that word, you begin to open up the text. That word, tov, is not necessarily referring to the things themselves. It's, it's not necessarily saying, God is saying, ooh, that's a good son I just made, or ooh, that's a really great platypus, or that's a great human being. No, instead what it's saying Goodness, according to the Hebrews, existed between things. But our understanding of perfection, which is really a Greek concept, exists in the thing. So when we think of what perfection as God would, um, would, would have it, perfection as we've been taught through the Greeks actually is about us becoming perfect or God's creation being perfect. And they're, you know, and then defiled. But actually, the way the Hebrews thought of it was actually that the relationships were perfect. There was an overflowing, forceful, vehement goodness in the relationship between humanity and God. And also in the relationship between men and women, and humanity and the rest of creation, and all of God's creation, and the systems that govern us. That the way things worked, there was only blessing, not cursing in the beginning. So when we look at what would God have for us now, what does it look like to be redeemed, it's not only about our relationship with God, though that is absolutely there, but the reality is, is that when our relationship with God is well, then we live in a web of relationships that then become well as well. So God... Um, looks at perfection or very goodness and says, if it's going to be very good, it has to be very good for all, not just some. So do we shortchange God? Do we sell him short in the sense that we tend to, and while this might seem to be sort of unique to the um, evangelical uh, Protestant believer, I think there's plenty of this uh, um, responsibility to go around, uh, no matter what your particular uh, persuasion might be within uh, the, the 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 large arch of Christendom. But do we sell God short by simply and singularly focusing on 
the power of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross to bring about forgiveness and reconciliation only on the vertical plane and somehow act as if uh, that same power, the ability to forgive and, and experience reconciliation um, and renewed right relationship is somehow not possible or we shouldn't bother with, our, with uh, doing or looking at that on the, on the horizontal plane? Well, you know, that's a great question. I would actually say that the way that we sell ourselves short is by lifting Jesus outside of his context and outside of the context of the whole rest of the Scripture. Because Jesus comes to us, was born into a long story, a story written by many authors that spans millennia and goes beyond him as well as, you know, through the cross and the resurrection and the first church and the teachings of Paul. And so when we take Jesus outside of his own context, meaning he was born in the context of a colonized, imperialized nation, the Jews, in the context of the Roman Empire, just a few years before his birth, the Roman Empire had um, squashed a possible insurrection in Galilee, where there were 2,000 people crucified at one in one day, crucified, 500 crucified after that every single day by another general who came through. The soldiers got so bored in their crucifixions that they began to place the bodies in different positions to humor themselves. That was the context that Jesus was born into. And so when, when Mary um, sings in Magnificat, when Mary sings that the, the low will be brought high and the high will be brought down low, and when Jesus says in Luke 4, I have come and I am, I've been anointed to preach good news not to the middle class, not to those who have, but actually to the poor, to the oppressed. There were actually poor people in that room. There were actually oppressed. The whole context was a, a context of oppressed people. So I think that that's one of the things that we do ourselves a disservice. We don't realize the ethical, the here and now implications of the gospel, of the scripture, when we lift Jesus outside of his context. Let's pause on that point. We'll come back to more of our conversation after a brief update on traffic. If you've tuned in and been late, shame on you. No, if you've tuned in a bit late, visiting today with Lisa Sharon Harper, author of The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. I think today's some conversation to help better understand how God would have us look at these questions, look at these problems, and what kind of an answer that the gospel can bring to them in terms of realizing not just uh, God's passion for reconciliation unto us, but then to see that same reconciliation play out on the horizontal between his creation as well. We'll take a time out, come back to more of our conversation with Lisa Sharon Harper as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation here at this edition of Lifeline, our visit with Lisa Sharon Harper. Her new book, by the way, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, newly published by Waterbrook and Multnomah Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, etc. Is part of the issue here, Sharon, the fact that perhaps in our quest to understand reconciliation between creation, creator, 
and seeing the the need or or comprehending the transformative power of salvation that it hasn't gone far enough and by that i mean um salvation is the beginning point then there is this matter of sanctification so we recognize sin the impact of sin we then through the power of christ's blood become saved that salvation then takes us to that long-term process in preparation of moving from um, the kingdom here on earth to the, the kingdom up in heaven with the big capital K. And that, of course, is called this matter of sanctification. I would imagine that if if mankind were really truly embracing sanctification and not just the concept of fire insurance, that the changing of our heart in relationship to God would also change our heart in relationship to each other. And therefore, the turmoil that we're seeing, even right now as we speak, would, would perhaps look very differently, wouldn't it? I'll tell you what, I'm going to tell you a story. I was, I was writing Genesis, the uh, chapter 2 of the book, on a glimpse of Shalom. And I was writing and, and researching, actually, Genesis 1. And some, I had this huge aha moment that led me really to a time of worship as I was writing, and actually weeping. I was weeping and worshiping. Because I realized that uh, many scholars now believe that they understand that Genesis as a book was actually written by several different sets of authors that um, one of those sets of authors was a, was a company of priests. These priests were leaving. They were exiting the Babylonian exile. As such, that, you know, so I've heard that. I've heard that term before about, you know, they were exiled. Okay, they didn't get to live where they wanted to live. But it's much more than that. They went through war. Sons died. Mothers died. Husbands. Brothers died. Then they were taken away from their land made to live in Babylon, in a place that was not their own. In that land, they were taught the worldview of the Babylonians. The Babylonians told them that they were created to be slaves. That was the Babylonian worldview. All humanity was created to be enslaved by the gods, slaves to the gods. They were also told that they were not made in the image of God. Only the royalty was made in the image of God. So when I was studying Genesis 1, and I get to the, uh, to the beginning of day 6, and they say that these priests write, and God said, let all humankind be made in our image, in our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth. I, I, it hit me. I was like, this is revolutionary for them because they have just spent 70 years in oppression. And then it hit me, wait a minute, I've never heard that the writers of Genesis 1, not 2, but Genesis 1, they were coming out of an oppressed context. They were, they were, they were writing in the context of thinking through and trying to figure out how do they see their own creation story in light of what they've been told about who they are by their oppressors. And I think that that's actually really, truly one of the biggest issues, Craig, is that when we study the Scripture, when we look at and try to put together theologies that work for us, we are not doing it from the same social location, from the same uh, uh, experience as those who wrote the Scripture in the first place. So what we tend to do is we tend to divorce it from its context, And then, you know, we jump to application and jump to interpretation 
before we even understand what the original writers might have been thinking in the first sure, place. Sure, and that's, that's the simplest definition of proof texting. Exactly. Uh, come up with a conclusion, and then we'll find a piece of scripture that's going to support your conclusion. <laughs> exactly. And, and check this out, Craig. I mean, imagine the power of, of these people having been enslaved for 70 years, turning around and saying, God said, let all humanity have dominion. And that word dominion, it's been really misunderstood. It actually means stewardship. It means, in fact, in Genesis 2, you have picture of dominion that is the till and keep when the humans are placed in the garden and said till and keep this. That, those words till and keep mean serve and protect. So dominion, to exercise dominion is to serve and protect. And all humanity has been given that, 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 that call and that capacity by God. But the problem for us is that we live in a world where we have laws and systems and structures that have told us a lie. So the issue here then is not just a matter of a distorted view of how we see ourselves, right. uh, or, or, or others rather, but also how we see ourselves. Right, that's exactly right. We, 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 have, we have not understood that God cares about how we exercise power here on earth and how we interact with each other in relationship to power. Because I think that one of the, the key, the, the, the big question that they were trying to ask in Genesis 1 was after having been oppressed for 70 years, how now shall we rule as we enter into the new rule in the temple? And so the question of the image of God is key then, because there's some implications there. All humanity is made in the image of God, so everybody is a representative figure of God. Everybody is called with the capacity to exercise dominion. And if we govern in a way that squashes the capacity of any individual or people group to exercise dominion, then we are also squashing the image of God on earth. Well, not only that, but we're also um, denigrating the way they see God because their perception is that God thinks less of them. That All of a sudden we've set up second and third class citizens and now all of a sudden there's an elite that's uh, going to get the bigger mansions in heaven and uh, then there's a second and third class citizens that are not so. And all of a sudden then I think that that diminished viewpoint of of ourself is a natural flow out of a, a taken out of context understanding of how God sees us. Yes, and you know, think of it this way also. When you look at the beginning of Luke, Luke 1, Luke actually sets it up. Luke says, you know, in the days of Herod, in the days of King Herod. Well, that's significant. He's setting up the context. The context is the context of empire. It's the context of an oppressed people. It's the context of of a very corrupt king um, uh, or proxy king for Caesar. And it's it's the uh, context of, of... the Roman Empire, which had just um, done 2,000 uh, uh, crucifixions and 500 every day after that, just a few years before this, the, right, the, the period when this text place takes place. So that's the context that Luke is setting up in the beginning. It's actually, and then Jesus is born. And in and, and Mark, we see Jesus say, repent and believe the, ki- the, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom, believe the gospel, believe the good news. I believe that when Jesus came, what he was doing was he was confronting the kingdoms of men that crushed the image of God. And Jesus' work was to create um, flourishing in the image of God, in the people starting with the Jews and working his way out. 
And that flourishing requires that we have relationship with God. But it also it, it requires relationship with each other that, that blesses and does not curse the image of God in each other. And we certainly know that it's possible. I mean, if you look at the ragtag group of the 12 that he had around him, I mean, there's plenty of, of cause uh, for, for none of the individuals to really get along, particularly when you consider the fact that you've got multiple layers of multiple classes of individuals. You've got tax collectors and you have physicians and you have thinkers and you have fishermen. So you've got everything from the blue-collar worker to the white-collar worker to those that are high up in government to those that uh, eschew anything involving government, thinking it's just a dirty place to be, to be. And yet you manage to find all of these men coming together in absolute harmony around the central figure of Jesus Christ himself. So we know that the sense of reconciliation on the horizontal plane is modeled successfully so. Uh, Sure, I'm sure they had their moments. I mean, we we certainly even see evidence of that in Scripture. But overall, the the capacity to see reconciliation uh, and, and, and balanced relationship take place along the horizontal is modeled in the apostles. And so why not then superimpose um, that paradigm on where we're at to get today. We'll talk about that when we come back after a brief timeout. We're visiting today with Lisa Sharon Harper. The book is called A Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. And we're going to dig down a bit deeper into the application of the power of the gospel and its influence on things such as the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, uh, all of significant um, changes that took place in American society 40 years ago now, and what seems to be a troubling absence of that impact today, and whether or not this is in part... can better explain the challenges that we're facing and what the road out may be. We'll get to that part of the conversation as Lifeline continues after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to our conversation. Lisa Sharon Harper with us. The very good gospel, how everything wrong can be made right. Sharon, you've got a lot of expertise in this arena. Uh, Listeners may not know that one time you served as a ministry director of a racial reconciliation uh, aspect of a ministry in greater Los Angeles, and and you've touched on a little bit of that um, in our conversation today. But I have to wonder, there seems to be a big distinction between what we're seeing happening in our country today, uh, the movement afoot to try and and get it addressed at, at multiple layers, and the movement that we saw leading the charge, so to speak, back in the 50s and 60s, and that was the church was absolutely forefront. Everybody thinks of or maybe has learned in school about Dr. Martin Luther King. They forget that he is the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and that it was the church that was largely the spearhead of that movement that eventually brought about things like the end of Jim Crow laws down in the southern states and the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. I'm just wondering if in this current battle enjoined as we talk about uh, police departments, what's happening uh, with the minority communities and whatnot in relationship to uh, community policing, if, if maybe the one thing that seems to be absent from the forefront of this, and that is the church. 
Well, let me just say the church is not absent. The church, there are many people actually who are deeply, deeply committed leaders in the church who are very much uh, pastoring and chaplaining the movement right now. But let's take a step back, and I just want to um, share how all of this is all connected. Um, and, and it's funny because I kind of have to go back to, to the Roman times, to, to Plato. Plato was the first person in Western civilization that I could find that actually said the word race and said it um, in terms of defining how race would operate within the context of a society when he wrote The Republic in 360 B.C. And in The Republic, 360 B.C., what he said was, different humans are made of different races, and those races are determined by the metals that the human is made out of. There are gold people, silver people, copper and iron people. Each of those different sets of people actually serve the, the Republic in a different way. So then flash forward to about 1453, A.D., and you get the Pope at that point um, putting forward the Doctrine of Discovery. So race, we know, um, uh, according to Plato, was supposed to define how society worked, how you structure society at what its most basic core. Then the Pope actually decides that if, so uh, an explorer comes to him and says, yo, 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 Pope, you know, I'm going to go exploring, and I need your blessing. And the Pope says, I got you, got my blessing, but even, I'll one-up you, if you come across some land that doesn't have a lot of concrete and doesn't have a lot of stone, go ahead and claim it for the kingdom. Go ahead and claim it for the throne, because that means they're not civilized, and that means they don't have a right to actually exercise dominion on that land. So where we get that, so what that does is it starts to create a bifurcation in those who are fully made in the image of God and those who are not. And that's the beginning of, of the religious um, uh, uh, a nod to the construct of race. Then throughout American history, you, well, first you have Linnaeus, the botanist, who puts together a, a literal taxonomy of human value with white Europeans on the, on the top, and then uh, Asians, and then um, red, he called them red, um, Americanus, the Native Americans, and then black um, Africanus on the bottom. And that is the, that's when we start to see different races um, in different ways. And then we start to codify those races into different stations of American society around the 1660s, 1680s, all the way up to the Three-Fifths Compromise, it said, legally speaking, black people are only three-fifths of a human being. Then, in 1790, we declared with the Immigration Act of 1790 that only white people would be able to exercise dominion in America, and that's when we said they would be the only ones who could become naturalized citizens. So from that point forward, we have had a struggle in America on this land of people who are oppressed, struggling to have the full image of God the full call, the full capacity that God created with them with to exercise dominion, realized and protected by law. That was the struggle of the civil rights movement. And of course, the irony is you read the Declaration of Independence and that preamble right, right. codifies that we hold these truths to be self-evident. And it's interesting mm-hmm. that it doesn't say we, we have determined we have established, we have decided. No, it says we hold. That gives right. credence to the notion that these truths are not truths that we 
created ourselves, but rather we're acknowledging have been established by some other entity, and certainly from a biblical perspective, I think we would say that that comes from God. And yet, even from then, we have managed to, you know, make make the bold pronouncement and statement and then run in the opposite direction ever since. Yes, that's exactly right. And so what you get is you get the Civil War where people literally had to die and bleed so that some could actually have in the image of God in them realized and cultivated and protected. And then you get Jim Crow that pushed that back, and then you get the Civil Rights Movement that, that again fought to have the image of God protected, realized, and cultivated in, in the same people and others who were then being oppressed. Now, the, the difference between the Civil Rights Movement and the Black Lives Matter Movement or the current movement for the black, for a, of black struggle is that the Civil Rights Movement was fighting specifically a very specific thing called segregation in the South. And that very specific thing, it hit the entire cross-section of the black community. I mean, it hit Grandma, it hit Bebe, it hit, it hit Uncle Joe, everybody. And what's the best institution, then, to address something that hits across the entire cross-section of society? It is the church. But the thing is, today... The people who were experiencing the brunt, the, the, the sharpest point of the, of the spear in terms of um, today's uh, uh, injustice with regard to mass incarceration and police brutality, the people who are experiencing it the most are the young people. They're the folks in the streets, and they're not churched. And so, of course, the movement would rise up from that space. And, of course, they would lead it because they understand the injustice the most because they're the ones experiencing it. So it's really the job, it's the role of the church to then come alongside, to add the moral heft of our moral authority, and to stand with them and to say, yes, we are only calling on the image of God to be fully honored in every single human being, including Michael Brown, including Tamir Rice, including Eric Garner, including of Philando Castile, including Alton Sterling, and the list goes on. You know, the sad thing is that you look at the impact uh, of illicit drug use in America and, and all the crime and everything that attends to that and the destruction of marriages and lives and relationships. And yet, as you point out, the impact, it's kind of a twofold one. It's sort of a, a, a double whammy in that if you are doing cocaine in its powdered form, you're likely right. somebody who has a bank an, a bank account or a contact list strong enough that you're going to be able to get out of it. You're going to have slap on the wrist. The judge is going to say, okay, 90 days probation and uh, write a big check to some foundation and, and uh, we'll, we'll consider it one and done. And yet, if you are in a minority class that doesn't use the powdered form but uses the crack cocaine form, oh, all of a sudden now you've got to do 90 years in jail. That's exactly right. And I mean, and more than that, we've actually, now it's actually been proven that when Nixon declared the war on drugs back in 19, in the early 1970s, I believe it was 1972, he said, we're going to do a war on drugs. Well, now we actually have him on tape saying that this was actually, that, that was a dog whistle, that was buzzword, that was a way post-Civil Rights Act to control and confine black, black communities. Because if they really were going to have a war on drugs, then they would have actually gone down into the South, and they would have, they would have focused on, um, on Southern women, because Southern women actually had the highest rates of drug abuse all the way from antebellum, the antebellum South, up to, up to present, because of the way that they had to suffer through the powerlessness that they experienced 
watching their husbands and and their brothers go and um, and well, let's just say it and and rape their quote unquote property, black women and men, quite honestly, um, through on on slave plantations. And so those women anesthetize themselves by by drugging themselves. But of course, that's not where we focused. Instead, they focused policing on black communities, and whenever you focus policing anywhere, that's where that's going to be the bulk of who you get. Well, even we see the, the impact of things like uh, Johnson's Great Society that created a welfare state that's, that's managed to have the same negative impact that while on the surface, oh, it sounds great, we've got, a, we've got a war on poverty, and we've got a war on drugs, and they don't realize in every war there are casualties, and there's also friendly fire that ends up taking out the wrong people. The very people that you're supposed to be protecting and supposed to be on the friendly side end up becoming victims as well. A fascinating read, and I sure appreciate the time, Lisa, from you to uh, share with us some of your thoughts and insights, and again, more found inside the pages of The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, newly released by Mobile Press, and again, you'll find it in bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. Our thanks to Lisa Sharon Harper for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, we're fortunate here in the San Francisco Bay Area. The Golden State Warriors have some of the best players in the NBA, the likes of which, of course, you know the names. Stephen Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, Kevin Durant. Although certainly in the last few weeks there seems to be a bit of a crisis of confidence with the Warriors, with uh, Kevin Durant out right now with uh, an injury. And while perhaps the Warriors and maybe a few fans are concerned about the fate of the team and its ability to continue to make big wins and uh, perhaps get a title without Kevin Durant, I tell you who's not worried. Kevin Durant isn't worried. And you know how I know that? Because he wasn't raised that way. We are pleased to have join us on the broadcast right now. The gal that's known to many as the real MVP, certainly around her household she is. She is the mother of Kevin Durant, Wanda Durant. Wanda, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Craig. How are you this evening? Doing well, thanks. Thanks so much for taking a moment to uh, to visit with us tonight. I know that you're going to be in town coming up on April the 12th for a very special fundraiser on behalf of Support Circle Pregnancy Clinics. We'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. But first, I would be amiss and in trouble with all of my listeners if I didn't get it from the source. How is your son doing? How is his recovery? He's doing well. He's a little anxious. He wants to get back out and and play with the guys, Uh, but the prognosis is great, and so he's waiting for um, the final word so he can let everyone know when he can get back on the court, but he's doing well. And, you know, from some of the things that we've read in the press, in spite of concerns about how well the team will do or not do without Kevin on on the court, um, his his sense of attitude about all of this remains to be very upbeat, very encouraging. And I suspect from what I've read that a lot of that has to do with the way you raised your boys. And for listeners that don't know, you were a single mom very early on in life. Your husband left you at the point where you were, what, 21, 22 years old, and you had a three-year-old and a one-year-old to raise on your own. Yes, that's true. Yes, that's true. That's not an easy job. No, it wasn't easy, but um, I had a strong uh, uh, faith in in the Lord Jesus Christ. I had a strong family support, and, and I just had to 
not quit. I just had I had two sons that I had to raise and who were looking to me um, for their sustenance of life, and I had to deliver. And so I just had to do what I needed to do to, to provide for them. And I was grateful because there were resources in our community that helped me um, to be a good mother. And so that's why it's really important for me to join with support circle because it just my story just it just uh, uh, parallels what their organization is about and so that's why I'm grateful to be a part of this organization's initiative coming up. And of course a big part of that is not only making sure that those resources are available in the community to help mothers that are dealing with trying to raise a kid on their own and circumstances that oftentimes can be very overwhelming. And, and like in your case, you suggest both not just the sense of the community support available too, but a strong faith. I mean, you were in a position, Wanda, where you had to be mom and dad, disciplinarian, breadwinner, homemaker all at once. And some people hear that and go, wow, any one of those jobs is difficult enough let alone to do all of those together. Yes, it, it was difficult, but there, I must say that But in that, we still had good times, and we had, and, and I taught my children um, the importance of faith, and, and, and through that, there were struggles with my faith, of course, um, being a young um, mother, a single mother, but my faith was very important to me, um, and that, that was the foundation of what I believed, to to be good to people, and those are the things that I wanted to teach my son, to be kind, to be generous, to be nice to people. And now I see those qualities and characteristics reflected in both of my sons. Um, but, yes, it was very difficult. But with my faith and my family and my community support, um, we had a pretty good life. Even through the, the lows, we had a pretty good life. Uh, clearly, God has been very faithful to you, and, I, and I've got to imagine, Wanda, uh, there, there, there couldn't have been any way that you could hold back tears um, when your son got up and in um, his um, address in receiving the Most Valuable Player Award turned and at the end really said, the real MVP, here is my mother. It must have been hard not to have a tremendous sense of appreciation to God and pride in what had transpired in that young man's life through all of the challenges that you had as a single mom. Yes, it was. It was just a a highlight of my life. And I did thank God because, and I thanked him because I I believe that my son got what I was intending to do. Um, and as I tell mothers, you're not going to do it right all the time. You're not going to make the right decision all the time. You're not going to be present or, or engaged as you would like to be all the time. But one of the things that resonated with me is that my son knew that I was in his life with him for him to be successful, um, to be uh, a decent human being, to be uh, morally sound, to be solid in his Christian faith, and to be... Um, 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 generous to the community that he served and lived in. And so I, I was grateful that he got it at such an early, uh, a young age. And so I was really grateful for that. And, and not only him, but my oldest son, they both are very uh, philanthropic. Um, they have their faith um, uh, foundation that I've instilled in them that was, that was handed down from generation to generation. And so I'm grateful that they're the men that they are today. Um, and so I'm really proud to be their mom. And I'm grateful that God has helped me to raise them the way that I did, Um, and I see the values that I was able to instill in them that are so important today, um, just like they were important to my mom to instill in me, so I'm grateful to God for his 
favor and his blessings on our lives. Having a sense of hope, not only through the years as you were raising the boys on your own, but, but later on in life, and let's face it, we're all faced by challenges that might be financial challenges, marital problems, whatever it might be. Uh, maintaining the sense of, of trust and faith in God is our foundation, is our rock. And keeping hope alive is so critically important. And, and clearly that sounds like that's been a big part of your own story, not just in raising the boys, but even in your own viewpoint in life. Yes, it has been. And, and one of the things that I, I, because I was such a young mom and um, when I started out, I really didn't have a whole lot of time to focus on myself. My focus was primarily on my children, and I'm grateful that I adhere to the responsibility of being a mother. Um, but once my sons grew up and grew older and, and they wanted to live their lives and go in the direction that they believed that God was sending them, I had to really kind of grow up in myself again and and, and and, and do all the things that I had encouraged my sons to do for so many years. And I thought it was so easy to say, um, I want you to believe and dream and to achieve your goals, and I want you to have hope. I want you to be resilient. And I had to learn how to do those things for myself as an adult woman, and I realized then that it wasn't so easy. And so what I began to do is I began to develop plans of what hope looked like. And for me as a um, as a, a empty nester, um, uh, entrepreneur, uh, a Christian, really dealing in a different lane, I had to come up with plans of hope and plans of sacrifice for my future and plans of resilience. And so I had to develop a, a plan for these things so that I could be able to carry them out. And I had to begin to see, um, see myself where I was at the time, to own where I was, and to come up and develop plans with my social circle, my Christian circle, and, and um so that I can live out the dreams and the plans that I believe that God has purpose for my life. And so it was a little bit of a, a, a learning process for me, um, doing it on my own, but it was easy to tell my sons to do it, so I had to come up with a plan for myself. Well, what I love about your approach, Wanda, is you kind of came full circle in the sense that you recognized as a young mother you had an enormous responsibility on your shoulders, as we said earlier, to, to be mom and dad and, and breadwinner and homemaker and all of that together in, in raising your boys, but then to realize that once that task had been accomplished, some people kind of cross the finish line and say, well, my job is done, and I kind of had to put my hopes and dreams on hold to raise the kids, and now that they're raised, well, I guess I'll just think about retirement. You instead looked at this and said, okay, now it's my time. Let, let's revisit those early dreams from years ago and rekindle that flame and really kind of start a whole new chapter in life, I guess we'd say. Yes, I did. I, I remember the day that this started. I remember um, I was sitting in my uh, in my den across from my sliding glass doors, and I began to weep like I never wept before. And I began to ask God, "What do you have purpose for me?" I had traveled the world with my sons. I had worked with my sons. He was successful. He was known. All of the accomplishments. I had shopped. I had done all the things that I didn't even dream possible for my life but I still felt empty inside. And so I began to ask God, what is it that you have for me to do? What is your purpose for my life outside of being a mother? Well, six months after that, it all started. My sons told me that, Mom, uh, we want you to enjoy your life. And I was, I was enjoying my life. And I said, I'm happy. I'm working with you guys. And I want to continue to work with you guys. And, 
And they looked at each other and they said, Mom, we really want you to enjoy your life. And so they had to tell me one more time, then I got it. But it wasn't the life that I had planned for myself. But what I realized is that I was out of place. It wasn't them because they had become the man that I had raised them to be, and they wanted to go into the journey of their lives without me hovering over them. And so I should have been proud of that they took that stance for themselves. Once I realized that I was out of place and not them, I was proud of them that they were able to even come to me and say, Mom, it's time for us to go out on our own. And so then I had to really focus on what God had purpose for me. And when I began to tell my story and I realized how much it resonated with so many women, um, I remember saying, God, I believe this is it. And if this is it, continue to open the doors for me. And he, he did that, and he showed me favor, and he's taken it to a whole different level from that point to now. It's been about, I guess, about six or seven years now, and he's really elevated me. And then when my son called me the real MVP, that kind of catapulted me. And I was thinking, oh, Lord, I'm not sure if I'm ready for all this. <laughs> but I thank God for his favor that he's blessed me um, from that day in 2014 to this day that he's elevated me. And, and I just pray that I'm humble enough to continue to accept his blessings and that I continue to do the things that he has purpose for me to do. So I'm living a blessed life. I really am. Wanda Durant, of course, is going to be in town on April the 12th at a special fundraiser on behalf of Support Circle Pregnancy Clinics. It'll be taking place at the Hyatt San Francisco there at the airport in Millbrae. And, uh, boy, you're going to be in, as you're already hearing, you're going to be in for a real treat. We encourage you to get more information and order your tickets online. Simply go to supportcircle.org forward slash KF. FAX. That's supportcircle.org forward slash KFAX. We'll take a brief time out. Let's come back to more of the conversation with the real MVP. I hear you thought it was Kevin Durant. Actually, it's Kevin's mom. She's with us today. We'll get to back to more of our conversation. Talk a bit more, too, about this special banquet coming up as this edition of Lifeline with Wanda Durant continues right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back to the conversation with Wanda Durant. Her younger son plays basketball. You might have heard of him. <laughs> Wanda's going to be speaking at the upcoming fundraiser on behalf of Support Circle Pregnancy Clinics that will be taking place on April the 12th at the Hyatt San Francisco Airport. And uh, joining in the conversation is Suzanne Martin. She is with the Support Circle Clinics and uh, Suzanne, I kind of think I get a get a good notion as to why you guys have invited Wanda to come and speak on the twelfth. Yes, thank you, Craig. Um, when we were coming up with a theme for our event, we were you know working through this, and we came up with a theme of resilience, and we wanted a woman who could reflect that. Somebody, basically, our ch- our clients go through challenges and they have to work through them. And we wanted somebody who's strong, who trusts in the Lord and leans on others to help them through difficult times. We prayed, we prayed, and God answered our prayer by bringing Wanda into our sights. And we were just so thrilled when she said yes. And Wanda, you you touched on a little bit earlier before the break uh, some of the things that excite you about coming to uh, speak at this banquet, and in particular encourage folks to stand with the work of Support Circle. Give us a bit more in terms of what excites you about this ministry. Well, what excites me about it is that they are there. No matter what the young uh, 
mother or father may need, they are there. They have the internal um, resources and external resources to support them, to help them to create the foundation that's needed to be uh, good parents. And so that's why I wanted to be a part of it, because I, that's what I needed. Um, and that's what helped me to raise my sons to be the men that they are today. And so it, it was just um, inevitable that we paired up. And it really, I guess, Juan, is a sense of striking that balance. The community support that you suggested earlier was so important for you as a single single mom, uh, newly divorced, raising two young boys, along with that sense of, of, of vision and, and focus, res- a sense of resiliency, and, of course, ultimately, most importantly, your faith in God. Yes, I, I think it's important because the foundation, and I, I was a Christian I was I was raised with Jesus. I knew Jesus. I knew I could say Jesus. I believe when I was first started speaking, and even with that, um, that early on that foundation. But I still needed the support um, of the outside organizations in our community at the time to help me, and I needed them to help kind of solidify and parallel some things that even Christ talks about in, in working hard and to be like the end and to be resilient and to never quit and to never give up, always have the faith and the, the importance of uh, renewing your mind and changing the way you think about things. And so sometimes, even though I had the support, uh, the spiritual support from my family, I needed something a little more comprehensive in addition to that to help me to solidify who I wanted to be as a woman and as a mother. And so um, Support Circle does that, and, and so I'm really excited to be a part of it still be a part of their, their fundraising efforts because I think it's important for all of us as a community to come together. And why not come together with an initiative um, that's purposed by God and from God to, to help us all? And so I'm really excited to be a part of it and looking forward to it. Now, Suzanne, you yourself, you're a single mom. You've got a couple of school-age boys. Um, so I know this is very near and dear to your heart. And being involved in the Ministry of Support Circle, you've seen down through the years, the difference that it's making in the lives of so many young women and and families. Uh, Tell us a bit more about this banquet coming up on April the 12th. Oh, absolutely. Um, So we expect hundreds of guests. Um, They're going to get dressed up in fancy cocktail attire. We're going to have it in the grand ballroom of the Burlingame Hyatt. Wanda is going to share her story of resilience. We're going to do a fun Q&A with her. Um, guests will get to hear how we can help women, babies, and men when it comes to unplanned pregnancies. Our executive director, Albert Lee, will share about the medical care and counseling we offer, our licensed clinics in Oakland, San Francisco, and Redwood City, and also about, about our plans for the year ahead. There will be good food, good food, a little bit of music, and, of course, an opportunity to make a contribution to support the work that we do. And this is all taking place again on the 12th of April at the Hyatt Regency there at the San Francisco Airport in Millbrae. Folks who live in the peninsula know exactly where it's at. You can get complete details and order your tickets online at supportcircle.org forward slash KFAX. That's supportcircle.org forward slash KFAX. And, and I guess probably suffice it to say, Suzanne, the earlier they reserve their seats, the better, because I have a sense after having heard what Wanda shared of her testimony that this is going to be a standing-room-only event. That's what we're hoping, Craig. And Wanda, for you, I understand it's just been within the last week or two that uh, the DVD of your story has been released, uh, the real MVP, the Wanda Durant story. That must be exciting for you. Yes, it is exciting. I never thought 
And that's one of the, at first I'll say, I never thought that this would be a part of my life that my story would be told um, in this fashion. And that's one of the, um, that's a part of the resilience and that, that I, the message that I want to convey to the young um, parents, mothers and fathers, that you never know what your future holds. You never know what God has for you. So you cannot quit because if I would have quit, there were times that I wanted to quit. And if I would have, this would never have been possible for my sons and, and neither for me. And so that, that this is a perfect timing that the video comes out so I can uh, convey that to them, that you can't quit because you never know. You just never know what God has in store for you. And it's always bigger and greater than you can imagine. And it's got to be encouraging to you to know that as you look back on all of those experiences and the challenges and the struggles you had as a single mom, to not only now today look at the success of your boys, Tony's a successful businessman, and, and we know what Kevin does, uh, to not only see the success in your boys and the fact that they're also following the Lord, but then to know that your story is being used of God to encourage others that are today where you were back then. That has to be enormously satisfying. And just to hear you say that kind of gave me chills. It, it is quite satisfying, and, and, and it causes uh, tears to well up in my eyes because it's still somewhat unbelievable to me today, and, and it's, I'm living it. I, the story has been told. It, it's been on TV. The DVD is out, and I'm living it right now. And, and, and it's like, what better example do you all have? Because I didn't know back then. I was terrified. I was scared. I didn't know what to expect. I wanted to quit. I wanted to give up. But I didn't know what life had for me as a woman. I didn't know what life had for my sons. And and I must say that I'm really grateful that I didn't quit because yeah. it's a wonderful life that we live. God, God had a great plan and purpose here, and it's all coming out of fruition. How exciting that is. And you'll get a chance to hear more when Wanda shares her story in person at the upcoming Support Circle Pregnancy Clinics fundraising banquet taking place on April the 12th. That'll be at the Hyatt San Francisco Airport there in Millbrae. And tickets are available online at supportcircle.org forward slash KFAX. That's supportcircle.org forward slash KFAX. Our thanks to Suzanne Martin for being with us tonight. And, and Wanda, uh, hurry up and go make some more chicken soup. we got to get your boy back on the court. Yes, yes, we're going to get him some soup real soon. He'll be back soon. All right. We're going to continue to pray for him, and thank you so much for spending some time with us tonight and looking forward to uh, you sharing coming up on April the 12th at the Support Circle event. Again, details available and reservations can be had online, and I encourage you. Do it quick. You say, wow, that sounds like a great banquet. Let me think about it. Now, you better hurry up and get the tickets while they're available. Supportcircle.org forward slash KFAX. And our thanks to Wanda Durant, mother of Kevin Durant from the Golden State Warriors, and Suzanne Martin with Support Circle Pregnancy Clinics for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.